B Corp was, was built around this idea of business balancing, making a profit whilst also having some kind of purpose. But what is the, the contribution? So the B in B Corp stands for benefit. So, you know, beyond making a profit, what benefit does your organisation have to other stakeholders, such as community, employees, the, the planet? Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with good grow guy, Tim Jones. This is episode one of two that I've recorded with Tim. We focus on business for good and the B Corp movement. So what is the B Corp movement? Well, B stands for benefit. Put simply, it is a for profit corporation that is driven to both mission and profit. There's 4,000 of them globally, the 70 countries, which is phenomenal when it's growing fast. Enjoy the episode and don't forget to hit subscribe, leave a review and share with a friend. Enjoy. Tim Jones, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're the CEO and founder of Grow Good. What's your mission? What's your purpose? You make me sound very grown up as uh, CEO and founder of a company, but hey, I guess I'll take it. Um, so Grow Good is all about really, at its heart, is trying to create as much, I guess, systemic change as we can by working with organizations and individuals within them to become the best versions of themselves in support of better social and environmental outcomes for everyone. So that's at the heart of what we do. Um, which is why I guess, yeah, one of our taglines is purpose field performance, like getting everyone connected to their purpose as an individual and as an organization so that they can max out the amount of good that they can do on their small time on this planet, which is really why we're sort of called Grow Good. It's all about growing small good in the world. And it's fair to say that you're in more demand now than you were before with your business? Yes. <laughs> um, particularly with the B Corp side of things. So we, we offer a range of services. Um, you know, we do, we help people individually find their purpose. We help organizations connect or reconnect to their purpose. We do, uh, like organizational culture change. We use a product called the emotional culture deck. So shout out to Jeremy Dean, uh, the inventor of that. We also do sales training for companies that are doing good in the world and, and want to do more good and, you know, scale the impact that they're having and, um, you know, get more revenue to do more good. Literally a year ago, you would struggle to, to to get rid of B Corp Consulting for free. It was quite a hard sell, you know, a lot of outbound uh, outreach to companies to say, hey, you're doing some cool stuff. Have you heard of B Corp? I think you might, you know, you might get something out of it. To now, we're getting maybe three to five inbound inquiries a week from people who I don't know. You know, it used to be really just sort of people through my network and friends of friends or people that I vaguely knew. Now we're getting just complete strangers knocking on our door, like I say, about three to five times a week. And I always kick off the conversation with, you know, so what do you what do you want to know about B Corp? And no, I don't need to know anything about B Corp. I just want to get, get B Corp certified and I think you can help me. And that has been a massive turnaround. Whereas like I say, this time last year, it was a lot of conversations around, okay, well, this is what B Corp is and this is why you might want to do it. And if I had an email yesterday, I went in and gave a presentation to uh, a senior leadership team and their board in 2020 and they emailed me yesterday to say oh hey um so this b corp stuff um yeah we think we want to go now <laughs> you pitching them to them basically just saying how do we do it we're gonna do it pretty much yeah and it's been a really really interesting turnaround it just yeah it feels like 
something has definitely changed. And I don't know whether that's COVID um, or whether it's time was always going to come and it's just taken this long. But yeah, in the last six months, definitely feels like, um, yeah, six to eight months, something's happened. And it's not an easy process to go through, is it? Well, I like to describe it as rigorous but achievable. Um, A lot of people kind of get scared off doing B Corp because they think it's going to be really, you know, insanely hard and unwieldy. We hear quite often we hear particularly smaller businesses and and especially kind of solo or sole traders or sole operators say, oh, it's it's not for me. Any business can give it a go. Um, You just need to have been in operation for more than 12 months. Some charities can look at certification, um, but you have to be, you have to have like a, a limited company part to you. So I think it's limited company with charitable status is, is what you have to have, but we can get into sort of specifics on that one. But as, if you have the mindset and the desire and the intention to prove the good that you're doing, B Corp is very, very achievable. I guess, you know, what, what we're doing at Grow Good is just trying to make it even more achievable. So yeah, people don't be put off giving it a go. It's 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 rigorous, and that's that's why it's good. Um, it's not just something that you pay your money to, and and they give you a little badge and say, yeah, welcome, you're you're now B Corp. You have to go through this this. It's a rigorous uh, initial self assessment followed by an audit, but it is achievable because over four thousand businesses have done it. And it's very core. It's purpose and profit, or it's it's a purpose beyond profit. So it's businesses who really believe in, you know, looking after their employees, making the environment better offsetting the damage they do, going one step further and, and actually doing good in the world. Exactly that. B Corp was, was built around this idea of business balancing, making a profit whilst also having some kind of purpose. But what is the, the contribution? So the B in B Corp stands for benefit. So, you know, beyond making a profit, what benefit does your organization have to other stakeholders, such as community, employees, the, the planet? And the assessment looks at your business or organization across five areas. So it looks at your governance, which is, uh, you know, essentially how transparent is the business in terms of its reporting? Are you reporting and measuring KPIs around your social and environmental performance as well as just your financial performance? You know, is it easy to know who owns the business? Um, do you have code of ethics and whistleblower policies and that kind of stuff in place? Then it looks at your um, workers. So how we, how do you treat your workers uh, above and beyond what is kind of state mandated for things like uh, leave entitlement? Um, what are you doing in terms of training and development opportunities? Then there's the community section, which looks at um, a little bit of your supply chain, ironically. So ideally, you want to be sourcing and purchasing locally and from independent suppliers where possible. It looks at your diversity and inclusivity. Um, it looks at your community contribution. So are you volunteering you know, locally within your community? Are you, are you making any donations to charity, what have you? Environment looks at your... Um, essentially inputs and outputs. So yeah, depending on... Um, yeah, like if you're a manufacturing company, you, you would have slightly different questions to say a service-based company, but essentially it's looking at your energy usage, uh, your production, your uh, carbon emissions, so on and so forth. Um, and then the last pillar or last section is your customer model, which is basically what what is it that you're making and who are you selling it to? Do you have um, things like guarantees and warranties in place, but also potentially if you can demonstrate that you're making some positive contribution to to your customer base, or if you're serving an underserved uh, population, you, you'd get recognition for some some points there as well. And on the side of bigger companies, and they kind of, I've got this vision of them sending someone off to kind of, you know, like tick the boxes and transform yep. them. Do you, in your consultancy, do you demand that actually, or, you know, 
it's got to be with the owners or the directors of the business. It's got to be at the core of the purpose of the business. Exactly that. I've heard of uh, and seen a couple of larger companies who, who've done exactly that. But, and it's typically you know, the sustainability manager or a brand manager or marketing manager who will go and do the assessment in isolation and then, um, you know, they kind of sell it into the board or the senior, or the rest of the senior leadership team or the CEO and say, hey, look, I think we should do this. And, and they kind of do it. And, you know, that's cool. You, you've met the criteria. But when we work with clients, we, we say, well, first off, we start off with an all-company kickoff session. So we do a 60-minute workshop for the entire company. It's an interactive workshop with, you know, sound and music and, and get, gets people, you know, talking about B Corp. But we introduce the entire company and, and we, we say you, the, the, everyone in your company needs to get on one of these calls or one of these workshops. And we take people through the history of B Corp. Like, where did it come from? We talk them through why is B Corp a thing right now? We look at the journey to B Corp certification so that everyone knows what's coming up. Um, and we also then look at the ROI times two, so the return on investment, but also the return on impact. So what are some examples of B Corps that are out there doing some cool stuff? And by the end of that session, we ask the, the team that we've presented to and say, look, if you were if, if we if you were in a large company and we were working with you, Mark, we'd say, look, Mark is going to be the king bee. So we have one, or, or, or if it's a female, we, call, we typically call them the, the queen bee. Um, so you have one person who is in charge for, for making sure the assessment is complete and ready to go. But in a small team, we would say, look, at least two to three others. We've had one company, Genora, who we helped... Um, go through their certification late last year they had the entire i think it was like 22 24 of their staff come to every session of the of going through the assessment with them so the more you can bring the the team on the journey the better outcomes you're going to get because a you're going to bring the team on the journey you're going to have massively increased engagement and just excitement from the team um that that they're part of this journey but also the thing that we always find is if you're just working with one person you'll be you know because uh, because literally what we do is we go through the assessment line by line, question by question, and just coach people through, I guess, h- how they can most effectively answer, but also um, prod them a little bit and go, well, have, have you done anything like this? Have you done anything like that? And they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, we did do that. And quite often when we're working with one person one-on-one, they can't remember everything that the business has done. So quite often um, with, with a sort of a, a hive mentality, someone will go, oh, no, hang on a minute. Don't you remember we had that person come in and deliver that training on mental health six months ago? Oh yeah, I completely forgotten about that. So having that team mindset not only helps bake in, you know, the journey, but it, it's just useful when it comes to answering all the questions. Because if you try to do it by yourself, it can become you know a bit harder. And I love the fact there's a recertification process. And I know a company going through that at the moment, and they said that actually there's there's sort of more weighting on some of the environmental factors, and and you know they were pleased that they'd made some moves on that. But it's great that it's a, a living. Um, breathing thing and i think consumers are going to already but certainly going to bigger numbers going to start choosing to do business or buy products from from businesses who are b corps and who are in and avoid those who aren't 100 percent um so you know I, was, I recently went back to the uk uh, in march of uh, 22 and it was b so march is b corp month so it's a month for all the b corps just try and make a bit of a you know noise about hey we're a b corp and, and you know what what we how we became a b corp and what it means and and what have you and i had lunch with a friend of mine in uh, covent garden and i was a bit early for lunch and i went for a walk around uh, within probably three or four blocks of the tube station i found four retail shops with b corp logos in their windows so that was uh, all birds 
uh, Rituals, uh, Aesop, and I can't remember the, the fourth one off the top of my head, but there were four retail shops with, with a B Corp logo in their window. And I, I kind of liked to mystery shop. Um, and I went and said, oh, hey, so this, this B thing you've got on the window, what, what's all that about? And without fail, all of the staff in the shops were like, yep, this is what B Corp is. This is what it means to us. This is how we did it. It's like, okay, this is happening. The UK have got over 700 B Corps now. So what we're definitely noticing is in certain consumer sectors, so food and beverage and health and beauty, if you're a New Zealand-based brand that is exporting into uh, the UK or Northern Europe, if you're not a B Corp in the very near future, you're, you're, you know, this is no longer aspirational in some consumer sectors. This is going to be table stakes. And I think we're, we're not quite there yet in New Zealand, but the, the trend is there. And, you know, as uh, we, you know, we're working with a handful of, um, you know, FMCG exporters uh, in New Zealand, you know, th- they'll be putting their, putting their sort of hat into the, into the ring in the UK. But it also is going to mean that when they're selling their product here, they're going to have the B Corp logo here and they're going to be using that story here. So I think pretty soon, yeah, in some of those um, consumer facing sectors, if you're not a B Corp, this is no longer aspirational. You clearly have a huge passion for for this. Um, you're a Brit who's living in New Zealand. You moved here in 2004. What did changing tax for a bit? But what did your early start of your career look like? What did you? You're in the British Army for a period of time. Yes, I was in the reserves in the UK for about seven years. I think um, jo- joining the army was kind of what I wanted to do when I left school or went to university. Almost all my good mates from uni all joined the army as, as uh, regular army officers. And I, di- I didn't make the cut. I passed the selection. It's, th- it's three days of sort of psychometric uh, testing that you do to, to sort of um, get the nod to be able to go to Sanders to train as an army officer. And I, I failed that selection. So I went on a bit of a journey, went to lived in Australia for a year. It was fun, you know, sort of bumming around, not doing much uh, to a degree, but then that gets a bit boring after a while. So I ended up, I got into the world of medical device sales through a mate of mine who um, I was playing, I played rugby with just before I left to come or left to go to Australia. And so I ended up, yeah, completely fell into this world of medical device sales um, where my job was to stand in the corner of an operating theatre, basically, and advise the orthopedic or neurosurgeon as to how best to place the the implant so yeah like i say initially i sold hips and knees for a year and then afterwards i spent the the rest of my career selling spinal instruments and implants so you'd be standing in the operating theater working with a with an orthopedic or neurosurgeon doing a a spinal procedure and you know when it gets to them actually putting in the bit that's going to fix the patient you are the de facto expert because you've been trained on it more than they have and so you'll be like yeah left a bit right a bit or no don't don't cut that bit of bone you want to do this you want to do that which is it's quite scary when you think there's there's people like me standing in the corner of an operating theater telling a you know multi-million dollar a year orthopedic surgeon how to do his job but that's that's true that is scary um it is very scary, um, particularly because I, I have a degree in medieval history. Um, some people think I say medical history, but it's like, no, no, medieval history. So <laughs> definitely no links to, to anything medical in my, in my uh, degree course. Um, but yeah, for me, it was uh, the, the earthquakes we had here in Canterbury. So 2010, 2011, um, that I, I had a big existential shakeup. There, there were lots of, I guess, things going on in the world of medical devices, which are best summed up in a Netflix documentary called The Bleeding Edge. Um I think a lot of people are, are a little bit, um, you know, uh, aware of how perhaps uh, pharmaceutical companies have been run historically. Um, the medical device world where, like I said, there's an actual physical product being put into a, a patient. That industry is probably a hundred times bigger than the pharmaceutical industry, but a thousand times less well known. 
So if you imagine in, in any hospital that you've ever been into, everything that you see in that hospital has been sold in by a sales rep like me. You know, every machine, the, the sofas, you know, everything that is in a hospital has been sold in by a salesperson. And yeah, in the, in the bleeding edge, if, if people get a chance to watch it, it's, it's quite harrowing um, on, on many levels, but it, it's eye and equally eye-opening. Essentially, there was large amounts of corruption, well, and I would hazard to guess there probably still is large amounts of corruption in the medical device world. So globally, you know, surgeons being paid to use products, you know, backhanders, kickbacks, um, to the point where there was also some levels of corruption happening in New Zealand. This would have been about 15 years ago. You know, two orthopedic surgeons based here in Christchurch were taken to, I think, to the high court uh, for tax evasion where they basically employed all their family members in their private business so that they could, you know, spread their salary across six people instead of taking it for themselves. Um, there was corruption that I saw happening in the medical insurance world. And all of this stuff after the earthquakes and then 2012, um, my wife and I had our daughter. Um, that just led me. I, I remember to this day, I was standing in an uh, operating theatre doing some spinal surgery in Ascot Hospital in, in central Auckland. And I walked out of that procedure and said, I just can't do this anymore. I'm done. And just keep walking. This, I, yeah, literally, I, I, I walked home because we, we lived at the time just, just not far from the hospital. I walked home. I just I came home, <laughs> said to my, you know, my wife, who just recently had a baby. I'm done. I'm out. She's like, whoa, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Um, because, uh, and, and I think this is what we're seeing a lot of people going through with this kind of like the great resignation or the great reset or the great rethink, but people are calling it different things, you know. The, the more, if you have some kind of existential jolt, so, you know, COVID, um, you know, potential near-death experience and, and just the, 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 I guess, induced trauma of, of a pandemic, and then you have some time at home to stop and think about, actually, am I on the right path? Yeah, that's dangerous. It, it leads you to some big thinking. I think um, purpose that you, I know you do a lot of work on and, and, you, and you speak to people about, um, and you said something in one of your talks, which is around, you know, challenging someone what is your purpose and i think the person re <laughs> replied with um you know look after and feed my children look after my family and yep. and you and you retorted with actually that's just survival that's that's not your purpose and and from myself has been grappling with this what is my purpose over the last few years um that you're getting in touch with is my purpose to work with these doctors that you actually grew a disdain for and you were trying to get in touch with your purpose totally that, and, that, and that was the thing I, I got to the point where i was resentful and angry at my customers and you kind of go well that's not <laughs> that's not going to work out very well for either of us in the long run and that, that really for me was that was sort of you know the genesis of, of my journey to to who what i am today and the work that i'm doing i i literally stopped and tried to work out well how have i ended up um, you know, who I am and what I'm doing today. I can never remember the song, but there's that, um, it's that famous song, you know, you wake up one day in, in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife and you ask yourself, how did I get here? It's like th that song was written clearly for middle-aged guys having their first existential crisis because it's so true. Like literally, how, how did I get here? And then you start looking back through your journey and what, what's been, what was really enlightening is that I kind of went through this journey to try and work out, okay, well, why am I here? Am I on the right path? If I'm not on the right path, what even does the right path look like? And I spent about four or five years like really delving into this topic of purpose. I, I, I didn't even really know it was purpose before. I was just, I literally was like, what is the meaning of life? Because seemingly working for large corporations who just want to make as much money as possible and genuinely don't care about human or um, environmental outcomes, that doesn't seem like something that I want to do for the next 50 years of my mm. life. And then you kind of go, well, well, what else is there? Because that seems to be what everyone's doing. 
And so it was kind of through that journey of discovery to try and work out, well, what, what is the meaning of life? I, I kind of got into this thing of purpose. It's like, well, hang on a minute. It's kind of seemingly having some contribution, you know, is, 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 the, is the place to be. And that contribution needs to be meaningful for you. It'd be great to avoid this sort of midlife crisis. I think that would be good. And maybe that, you know, possibly won't happen to a next generation who get in touch with it. Because you dealt with failure, right? So you, you've been, you know, ex-army. I mean, I can't imagine fail, you know, failing to get into uh, the officer training or, you know, being kicked out of that. That must have been really hard on you. Massively, yeah. And it was a really big part of me, you know, because it's like I had no plan B. It's like, you know, just going to join the army, do, do three or six years get out probably get a job in the city you know old boys network went to a good school in the uk happy days and then it's like well now what so yeah that was a big part of it but again you know looking back at the journey well you know what why was that something that i really wanted to do well i think when you look at like it's, it's sometimes called the golden thread so if you look back through your life so it's so a part of trying to work out well who am i today and who could i be or who should i be is to look for the themes that are recurrent through your life and clearly I mean, in, in many ways, volunteering to serve your country, to defend it, is one of the biggest acts of purpose and potentially sacrifice that you can offer yourself. As, typically, archetypically, as a male, the, the ideal of sacrifice and putting yourself on the line for the tribe is military service of some description. Whereas archetypically, you'd, I'd argue for the female, the sacrifice was childbirth because you know, historically, only until very recently, and, and even recently, even now, you know, childbirth is a dangerous um, experience, potentially, if it goes if it goes catastrophically wrong. So the sacrifice that the archetypical male versus female makes, what well, one is the warrior, I'm going to serve and defend the, the tribe and the community, and the female, it's, it's I'm going to make the next generation. And so I think it's not uncommon, I think, uh, and particularly a lot of young males, you know, in their pre-20s, when your prefrontal cortex isn't actually on board yet, and you can't make great decisions, Joining the army is a great place for a young, a young bloke to go to because it's like they feed me, they clothe me, and they tell me what to do. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, that that failure was massive. That sat with me for many years. It was kind of like, what, why, why wasn't I good enough? But then the flip side, I, I kind of look back and go, well, would I really have wanted to go to Afghanistan for ten years? Not really. Um, talking to a lot of my mates who did get into the army, they were like, mate, you didn't miss anything. Like it was shit. <laughs> you know, it was like, we really, I would not like to have, you know, I would not want to go back. And then, you know, on the flip side, I ended up in New Zealand. I've got a beautiful wife, a beautiful daughter. I've got a great life here. So I, I almost have some element of belief in fatalism or, you know, predestiny that, well, that happened for a reason. You know, I, I could have been blown up in some IED explosion in Helmand province 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So when you have your heart set on a path that you think is the path that is for you and you don't get it, that that was, I think that was part of the kind of the existential shock, but I was too young to know how to actually utilize it and use that as a springboard forward. But yeah, when I had the second, I guess, existential crisis um, with the earthquakes and birth of a child, it was like, okay, it kind of, it's, it's all part of a, yeah. it's all part of something. We haven't met in person. Um, I've said to you before the recording that I actually have been sort of dwelling or you know, thinking about pondering, contacting you for at least a couple of years. You exude yep. huge amounts of confidence, and I love the description of you on the pod, on your uh, website, which is um, uh, that someone said uh, you have the, uh, the thinking ability of Russell Brand, the energy of Tony Robbins, and the humour of Greg Davies. Are, are you <laughs> fundamentally a really confident? 
out there extroverted person or what is the real Tim Jones? That's a great question. Thank you for listening to episode one of two with the good grow guy, Tim Jones. As you've heard, episode very much focused on business for good and the B Corp movement. The next episode focuses on purpose. Tim has some amazing stuff to say about purpose and finding your purpose. Thank you. Enjoy. Don't forget to share with friends, leave a review and hit subscribe. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing because I sure do. 